All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to begin. Uh, so we will, as always, open with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us back together after this long break. We pray that you would uh, revive our hearts and minds as we come back to this great book and that you would help us as we study what Lewis has written and then we study scripture that relates to it, that you would help us through that to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are uh, back after a long break, and I'm very happy to see all of y'all back. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of review tonight and then jump right on into chapter nine. I had mercy on you and did not give you a handout uh, this evening because I figure a lot of you are probably rereading the first eight chapters that you might have forgotten over Christmas. Uh, but next time, be prepared. So uh, we have a wonderful musical selection that we will see if anyone can figure out what this is. let this go for just a minute because it's a really cool arrangement that I'll tell you about in just a minute. is is an arrangement for brass of O Church Arise, and it is not an insignificant number of brass players. I didn't count how many there are, but it's upwards of 50. And so it is uh, all of the leading brass players from the Salvation Army bands all across Canada who were all brought together for this worship time and if you're ever having one of those days where you feel a little discouraged, I'm sending the link with the email. Put this on and turn it up. You will no longer feel discouraged. Uh, it is a wonderful piece of music, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it later tonight because there is a very important theme about truth and lies in tonight's chapter, and that song does a wonderful job of talking about that. So uh, let's start by saying our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So if there's anyone who's new tonight, welcome, whether you're here in person or uh, out in the online world. There are three ways you can approach this class, and you can change from week to week or semester to semester. If you've been scuba diving and you're worn out and you want to just be on the beach, that's all good. So if you're on the beach, you don't do anything, you just show up occasionally. No reading, no anything. Uh, you may be listening to another podcast while you're here. Whatever it is, that's fine. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you find interesting, or you can scuba dive, uh, which means go deep on everything. And uh, there will be lots of good stuff coming your way over the next few weeks. If you are not on our email list, uh, please sign up if you're here in person, or if you are online or listening to the podcast, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, USA, and uh, you will be able to find me on that website. Just send me an email and I'll get you added to the list. So uh, one of the things that we've talked about as we've been studying this book is that it is truly a work of genius because it is operating simultaneously on three very different levels. So the first level is that it is a marvelous capstone work that draws all the children's Narnia stories to a fitting close. And it actually won the top award for the English language children's book when it came out. But it's much more than that. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of the, and the glory of heaven. And for us today here in 21st century America, it is a parable about following Jesus, particularly around the ideas of word and truth that is particularly applicable in our culture today. So that's part of the reason I'm very excited to be back. So you will remember that the book starts off uh, with this ape, this ape uh, who is named Shift, who is very selfish, I think we can say, and uh, his companion of sorts, more like his slave, is Puzzle the Donkey. And we see how a lion skin comes their way and Shift, the ape, thinks this is the way to be able to control the world because I can dress this donkey up like a lion and people will think he's Aslan, the god of this world of Narnia, and I can therefore tell people whatever I want them to hear and I can make myself king of the world. So that happens and the ape uh, gets more and more full of pride and hubris and evil intent and he announces that he is not an ape, that he is actually a man, despite the fact that he's clearly an ape. He declares that he's a man and he says he is the intermediary for all communication with Aslan. The rightful king of Narnia, Tyrion, who is a young man in his 20s, uh, is trying to figure out how to deal with the situation and in a moment of rashness he kills uh, some soldiers and decides he should give, turn himself in because that's the honorable thing to do. But of course the ape is not honorable at all and so he presses his advantage and ties Tyrion up to a tree 
Night falls, these Lernian animals come out and take care of Tyrion in a really beautiful scene. Tyrion cries out to Aslan, whom he's never met, never seen, who he believes in, uh, but he's just been told about. And he cries out in the wood, Aslan, Aslan, feeling sort of hopeful, but also probably more like three parts foolish for doing it. And as he does that, immediately he's transported into this vision of another world where he encounters Peter and these other children. And he's so excited because he thinks he can ask them for help and Aslan will send them. And just as he's beginning to ask for help, he realizes he can't speak and then the vision fades away. So he is utterly discouraged. He's tied to the tree, feeling really sorry for himself, cold and wet and achy. And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, this young boy and girl appear out of nowhere and he recognizes them from this vision that he had. And he's somewhat disappointed because he was hoping it might be like one of the adults that might have come. And instead he gets the two smallest children. But nonetheless, they are magical uh, in his view and they free him from captivity and they escape through the woods and they put on some armor so they're ready. And Tyrion learns that these children are uh, quite estimable in the things that they are able to do, uh, like archery and sword fighting and woodsmanship. And so the first thing they need to do is to go back and try to rescue Jewel the Unicorn, who is the king's best friend. And they reach Stable Hill, they rescue Jewel, uh, they also manage to free Puzzle the donkey, the fake Aslan, and take him out. And they think that this is going to be really great because now they have the evidence of the ape's duplicity. They can call out the lie and show that this is just a donkey with a lion skin. It's not Aslan and that the ape has been lying to them to manipulate them. So they are encouraged about that. But then they encounter this group of dwarves who are being marched off. They've literally been sold into slavery. And so they're being marched off to spend the rest of their lives in slavery. And Tyrion and the children liberate them from their captors, change the course of their lives and destiny. And then they show these dwarves the donkey with the lion skin and say, see how this ape has deceived you. And Tyrion expects that the dwarves are going to rejoice that they've been liberated and that they're going to see the donkey with the lion skin and they're going to be outraged and they're going to join forces with Tyrion and the children and want to take out this evil ape. But instead, what happens is the dwarfs choose cynicism and disbelief and they march away without even saying thank you. One dwarf makes his way back and he says that the enemy is not just the ape, but the Calermedes, this other nation who worships the god Tash, that they are actually the ones calling the shots. And there is this officer from the Calermedes named Rishta Tarkon, who has taken uh, Ginger the cat, a very wily and evil feline, and they are the ones telling the ape what to do. So then in chapter eight, the eagle comes and as they are walking through Narnia, there is this horrible, horrible smell that 
y'all are probably too young to remember this, but there used to be days in Charleston when the paper mills and the fertilizer and all that was all happening at once, and the wind was blowing from North Charleston, and you did not want to go out of your house because it just smelled horrible. Well, if you make that exponentially worse, that's the smell that suddenly occurred in Narnia, and then suddenly they see this horrific creature with these claw-like hands and this big beak, and they realize that it is the god Tash. And so they are horrified that Tash is real and that Tash is abroad in Narnia. And then the eagle comes as he's been circling and tells them terrible, awful tidings that Care Paravel, the beautiful castled city on the sea that has been the seat of the kings and queens of Narnia has been conquered by an invading force of Calamines and that that force is even now marching toward where Tyrion and the children are and that their dear friend Rinwit the centaur who was leading their forces in Ker Paravel has been killed. And Tyrion declares that Narnia is no more and begins to fall into despair. But as that happens, they begin to talk about the beautiful times that there were in Narnia, even as they are mourning its demise. So that brings us to tonight, uh, the meeting at Stable Hill. And part of what's going on here, Lewis doesn't ever do anything by accident. So we've just come into the epiphany season. What liturgical season were we in before that? Christmas. And during Christmas, do you hear about a particular type of building? Like a stable. Yes. I'm sure that's just an accident or not. So Stable Hill... Lewis is playing with this idea of the stable. And there is this amazing poem. Um, well, there are several poems that are about this with T.S. Eliot and William Butler Yeats talking about the incredibleness of the incarnation. And he talks about the um, uncontrollable mystery on the bestial floor. And that whole idea that God, the center of all power in the universe, makes himself a baby lying on the floor of a stable. And how incredible that is. But that whole thing is going to come back. But just note, they're on Stable Hill. So they realize, as they begin to take counsel with each other, that the Tisrock, who's this Calormene soldier, has been using the ape all along and that they're going to have to battle the Calermines on two fronts, not only the invading army, but that the ape is really being controlled by the Calermines as well. So Tyrion, realizing that this is getting to be a pretty dire situation, says to Jill and Eustace, well, you are children. It's not fair for you to be in a battle where we're probably all going to be slaughtered. I want to send you away. And they are outraged. They are outraged because they think of themselves as valiant warriors. But Tyrion feels this duty to protect them. But then they all sort of realize simultaneously, even if he wants to send them back to their own world, 
They can't get there. That's not within their power. Aslan is the one who draws people in and takes people out of Nardia. So they realize they're, they're there, at least for the time being. So they begin to develop plans very carefully, looking at the gifts that they have, the natural advantages that they have, even though they know they're way outnumbered, they do not despair. So Jill and Eustace begin, after they've made these plans, they're marching through the woods, um, being very careful to try to hide along the way, and they're marching towards Stable Hill, and suddenly the realization dawns on Jill and Eustace that we may be going to our death. And they become very frightened, but they have this beautiful, deep moment of fellowship where they actually verbalize their fears, share them with one another, and encourage one another. And so after this dangerous journey where there's sentries and snipers all around, they make it to Stable Hill. And when they get there, they see Rishta Tarkhan and Ginger the cat using the ape as their mouthpiece. And they see that the ape is no longer in control at all. He's just a puppet. And they proclaim to the gathered creatures who are there that they've learned that there's an imposter Aslan who is around, a donkey wearing a lion's skin, and that if anyone finds him, he must be dealt with. Well, this is a terrible thing because that was Tyrion's whole strategy to be able to show Puzzle the donkey with the, with the lion skin and saying, this is the fake Aslan that the ape created. And they have just pulled the rug out from under that because of their lies. So there are a number of themes here that are very relatable in our culture today. And I love this first one, proclaim the truth and take the adventure. Vulnerability and sharing burdens brings comfort even when the situation is dire. Fighting for a noble cause, even if risky, is better than hiding and avoiding the fight. Fellowship and doing the next thing in the midst of crisis helps to avoid despair. Communicating love and forgiveness in extreme circumstances is important. When you make an alliance with evil, evil will end up controlling you. And lastly, lies with a little truth mixed in are the most dangerous type of deception and can cut the ground out from under the truth. And we'll see if we get through all this. Uh, so first, proclaim the truth and take the adventure. So when they learn what has happened, uh, Tyrion summons all of them together and he gives this very short little speech. And this is what he says, nothing now remains for us seven, but to go back to Stable Hill, proclaim the truth and take the adventure that Aslan sends us. And if by a great marvel, we defeat those 30 Calamines who are with the ape, then to turn again and die in battle with the far greater host of them that will soon march from Caraparavel. And what is amazing about this is that 
he knows that death may be the result, but they're not gonna shrink from proclaiming the truth. They're gonna proclaim the truth and they're going to take whatever the adventure is that Aslan brings to them. And this is a, a little plug to go back and find the YouTube video uh, which I sent out in the email from the Mere Anglicanism Festal Eucharist and listen to Vaughn Roberts' sermon because he is talking about Daniel. And Daniel is an exemplar of exactly this, of proclaiming the truth and taking the adventure, trusting in the Lord in the midst of circumstances that any moment could lead to his death. So this is a concept that is all through the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. So some scriptures here. So this is Paul and his farewell to the Ephesian elders. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is powerful. That is somebody who is sold out to Jesus. And then this beautiful passage uh, from Acts chapter five, the leaders of the Jews, the same ones who put Jesus to death, have arrested uh, Peter and some of the other disciples and brought them in before the council and uh, they didn't really know what to do with them. So they've had this whole long discussion and finally Gamaliel uh, gives them some advice of this. If this is of God, there's nothing you can do about it. If it's not of God, it will fail on its own. And so this is where we pick up. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them. This is not a nice little like tap. This is probably flogging, it's a severe beating. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they hid themselves and never said anything about Jesus again. No. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. They knew that the leaders could come and get them and put them to death at any time, but they knew the truth that they were called to proclaim and they were not going to be cowed into submission. And it doesn't say they did this reluctantly and that they were scared to death and moaning and complaining about how unfair it was. It says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to do this. And at the risk of sounding sexist, this means we need to man up. What this means is that we need to quit being, and I'm sure none of you are like this, I am like this sometimes, whiny 
about things that are going on. What we need to do is keep the main thing the main thing and to realize that Jesus has conquered sin and death and the devil, and that's all that matters. And so we are called to go and proclaim and take the adventure that comes to us. Second, vulnerability and sharing burdens brings comfort even when the situation is dire. Now, just remember, Jill and Eustace in the story are probably like 12, 13, 14, something like that. That is not an age that most people of that age are communicating deep emotional truth with their friends. They are terrified of revealing anything about themselves. But look at what happens here. This time, Jill and Eustace walked together. They had been feeling very brave when they were begging to be allowed to come with the others, but now they didn't feel brave at all. Pole, said Eustace in a whisper, I may as well tell you, I've got the wind up. Oh, you're all right, scrub, said Jill. You can fight, but I, I'm just shaking if you want to know the truth. Oh, shaking's nothing, said Eustace. I'm feeling I'm going to be sick. Don't talk about that, for goodness sake, said Jill. They went on in silence for a minute or two. Pole, said Eustace presently. What, said she, what will happen if we get killed here? Well, we'll be dead, I suppose. But I mean, what will happen in our own world? Shall we wake up and find ourselves back in that trail? That's supposed to be train, back in that train. Or shall we just vanish and never be heard of anymore? Or shall we be dead in England? Gosh, I never thought of that. And what you see here is instead of walking along pretending everything is just fine and just being brave, they're sharing their fears with each other and being vulnerable and saying, yes, these are the things that we're worried about, but we're keeping going. We're keeping going. They're still going forward. And there's much to be learned, I think, from this passage because particularly in American Christianity, we a lot of times get the idea, it's me and Jesus against the world. And the idea of sharing with the people that we are walking with on this pilgrimage of faith, sharing things that are embarrassing when we are afraid or we feel ill-equipped, that's not something that we're prone to do. But it's something that, will bring comfort, particularly when circumstances are difficult. Listen to some of these scriptures. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now that's a familiar verse, but just think about what that says. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That by doing that, by sharing our burdens with another believer, we are in some way fulfilling the law of Christ. That is a pretty amazing thing. And this is probably painfully obvious, but you cannot bear someone else's burdens if you don't know what they are. And someone can't know what your burdens are unless you share them. Then this great verse from 1 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, in case you missed it, that word comfort is kind of important in that verse. And we are comforted by God, not just so we can say, oh, that's so nice. We are comforted so that we can share the comfort that we have received with others who are struggling. We are like a pitcher that is filled with the comfort of God in order that we can be poured out into other people's lives to help comfort them. And then another very familiar verse. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is one of the most vulnerable things you can do is to confess your sins and temptations to another believer. And one of the things that, particularly because we live in the Bible Belt, very often if somebody does share something with us, we will say, praying for you, praying for you. And that might be good if you actually do it. But if you are like me, it's all too easy to say that and then just to completely forget. But I would suggest to you that a really good practice, it's a little awkward, but it's a really good practice, is to say, let's pray now. And even one of the things, and this just happens probably because I'm wearing a collar, but it seems like whenever I go into a restaurant, I encounter a wait person who is dealing with something. And often they will say, Father, will you pray for me? And they expect that to mean, like when I go to church, will I like light a candle for them or something? But I've started, if anyone gives me the opening to do that, I would say, yes, I would love to pray for you right now if that's okay. And that so far, I'm at 100%. No one has said, no, that's not okay. And I would encourage you to do that because sometimes you can sense the Holy Spirit being with you in that moment. Uh, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then Jesus in that last supper, in that beautiful series of John 14, 15, 16, and 17 um, of the farewell discourse, Jesus' vulnerability and sharing love and burdens in that time is absolutely breathtaking. And he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And let's just remember the context of who Jesus is with. These are smelly fishermen, tax collectors. This is a bunch of guys hanging around, okay? This is not the, the feminized, sort of sweet-looking people with Breck shampoo hair that you see in these depictions of the disciples. That is not what this is. 
This is a bunch of rough and tumble guys who have been walking with Jesus for years, and here he is saying, love each other, I love you, you have been loved by me and you should love one another in that way, and by the way that you love one another, people will know that you are my disciple. That is radical. All right, fighting for a noble cause, even if risky, is better than hiding and avoiding the fight. Now, I will just say, it is very easy to hide and avoid the fight. And sometimes I think we are called to remain silent. One of the uh, proverbs, many of you know, I had a great aunt who was kind of like my grandmother, and she was full of proverbs for every occasion. And one of them that I think she might have stolen from Abraham Lincoln uh, is the, the proverb that says, it is better to remain silent and appear stupid than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> and sometimes there is great wisdom in that. But there are other times when we know that we are called to fight. We are called to fight and it is a noble cause. And this used to be part and parcel of the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And that's why there are a lot of martial hymns in the 1940 hymnal that we still use here at St. Philip's. Onward, Christian soldiers, the Son of God goes forth to war. Lead on, O King Eternal. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. All of those things. And it's not that we're going out and warring on people. We are warring against evil and against the enemy and against the lies and the darkness. So Lewis is engaging that whole idea. So the children are talking and um, they say this, it'll be rum for Peter and the others if they saw me waving out of the window and then when the train comes in, we're nowhere to be found. Or if they found two, I mean, if we're dead over there in England. Oh, said Jill, what a horrid idea. It wouldn't be hard for us, said Eustace. We shouldn't be there. I almost wish, no, I don't though, said Jill. What were you going to say? I was going to say I wish we'd never come, but I don't, I don't, I don't. Even if we are killed, I'd rather be killed fighting for Narnia than grow old and stupid at home and perhaps go about in a bath chair and then die in the end just the same. That is a great line. And it is something for us to think about because it is a reminder, uh, and again, if you were at the conference, we heard from a couple of speakers about teleology, which sounds like a big fancy word, uh, but it basically just means the idea of being made for a purpose, that you're being made for a purpose. And one of the great tragedies in our culture right now is so many people feel purposeless. They don't know what they are for. And this is one of the reasons Justin and I had so much fun uh, going to see the Barbie movie with Bishop Edgar. And <laughs> that was great. People didn't look at us at all. Um, but the great thing about that movie is you, know, you expect that it's all going to be, oh, pink and pretty, ah, and it's not. There's an element of that, but very early on in the movie, there's this part where Barbie wakes up and she's like, oh, I'm in my perfect Barbie world. 
I'm in my perfect Barbie bed. The sun is shining. Everything is beautiful. But what if I die? And then all of a sudden you hear this of like the needle on the record going off and all of the action everywhere in Barbie land just stops. And every character on the screen is like, because people are terrified of death because they don't know what they're for. They don't know their purpose. And all through the movie from then on is the whole idea of what am I for? Not just Barbie, but Ken, what are men for? What are women for? And then right at the end, there's all of this sort of a dream sequence of mothers and babies. And the movie ends with Barbie, the plastic doll, walking into the office of an OBGYN. And then it cuts to the closing song that was commissioned by the movie and sung by Billie Eilish, What Was I Made For? And if you're a Christian, you know what you were made for. Yeah, the Westminster Confession talks about that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to know God and enjoy him forever. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. And there are so many great scriptures about this. This really the whole book of Hebrews is kind of about this. And there was a great sermon again from Vaughn Roberts on this past Sunday morning um, out of Hebrews 10. So here we go. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then this great excerpt out of chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. These saints all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Some of them were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is a glorious truth about the gospel, but it's a hard truth to hear when you live in the comfort that we all live in. And we're not to go and seek suffering for suffering's sake, but we are to be alert for the call of the master. And when we get to O Church Arise, there's a lot of deep truth about that topic in that song. 
So fellowship and doing the next thing in the midst of crisis helps to avoid despair. And I want to just say, in our culture, when people are in the midst of crisis, what we usually do, what our culture tells us to do, is to isolate. That we isolate and we shut down. And that is the worst thing that you can do when you're in the midst of crisis. And it's what Satan would love for Christians to do when they're in the midst of crisis, to distance themselves from God, distance themselves from fellowship, to just sit there in their crisis and worry about it. Because worrying is so productive, or not. So, while Jill and Eustace were talking about this, the others were discussing their plans and becoming less miserable. Imagine that. That was because they were now thinking of what was to be done this very night, and the thought of what had happened to Narnia, the thought that all her glories and joys were over, was pushed away into the back part of their minds. The moment they stopped talking, it would come out and make them wretched again, but they kept on talking. Pagan was really quite cheerful about the night's work they had to do. He was sure that the boar and the bear and probably all the dogs would come over to their side at once. And he couldn't believe that all the other dwarfs would stick to Griffel. And fighting by firelight and in and out among trees would be an advantage to the weaker side. And then if they could win tonight, need they really throw their lives away by meeting the main Calarmine army a few days later. And part of what I think Lewis is saying to us here is a lot of what you see in scripture, that you can either look at your circumstances and focus on those circumstances and say, woe is me, everything is terrible, I think I'll go eat worms. Or you can look at the circumstances and say, God is still God and he is still calling me to follow him and I wanna figure out what that looks like in these circumstances. And I would commend to you the whole book of Philippians on that because Paul is writing that book, which is the most joyful book in the New Testament, full of commands to rejoice and give thanks and be anxious for nothing while he is chained to the wall of a jail. Now, you may have some problems in your life, but the fact that you're sitting in here tonight means you're not chained to the wall of a jail. So it could be worse. And we need to start thinking about the fact that not isolating and looking at what God is calling us to in the circumstance is important. So some scripture, uh, first from Romans. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this great verse from 2 Timothy 2.22, turn away from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. And I love this verse. Some translations, instead of saying turn away, say flee. It's that same sort of word of get out of a burning building. And then what it says to do in that next verb is pursue. Pursue is a big word. This is like chasing with all that you've got in you. 
putting single-minded focus going after. And what you're supposed to go after are righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you're not pursuing it alone. You have a company with you, a company of people who call on the Lord with a pure heart. And the image is that you are all going together, running, chasing, pursuing where God is calling you. I just have to tell you a funny story about this verse. When I was being chaplain at Camp St. Christopher, this was the theme verse for the talk one night. And I like to do skits, so I'd come up with a great skit for this. So I'd ask some of the counselors to help me, and I printed out these signs, and one sign said, temptation. Another sign said, righteousness. Another said, faith. Another said, love. Another said, peace. And another said, those with a pure heart. So all of those things in the verse were represented by people holding the sign, a counselor for each one. And so I started off talking about it, and I said, what the scripture says is we are to flee, and then the person carrying the temptation sign came out, and I said, flee temptation. But instead, what most of us do is think, oh, we can handle temptation, and so we just go over, and I went over and sort of stood by the person holding the sign. We just hang out with temptation and think we're going to be fine. But I said, what's not, that's not what's supposed to happen. And so we had part two of the skit where we had righteousness, love, peace, those with a pure heart, all lined up where they were ready to start running toward the goal. And temptation was going to come out of the door, and I was going to show them what it means to flee. And so temptation came out of the door and I turned to flee and I pushed off and I forgot that I was standing on a throw rug on top of a varnished wood floor. And I pushed off pretty hard and I went airborne. I was like four and a half feet in the air, horizontal. And um, this is in the Chapel of the Palms at St. Christopher, which is hollow underneath. And so I sort of hung there in the air and then went bam. And the whole building shook, and you know, and you could hear the camper like, "Is he dead?" And uh, but I was I was not injured in any way. But the best thing about it was on the last day of camp, when the parents are picking up their kids, one of the seventh graders came up to me and said, "Father Brian, I will never forget about fleeing temptation, because every time I think about it, I'll think of you up in the air." And I was like, "Humiliation is good for the soul." But that is a great verse to memorize because there's a deep truth in there about pursuing these things, not half-heartedly thinking about them from time to time, but single-mindedly pursuing and doing it with others. All right, then Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And the idea is that the third strand of this rope is God's presence, the Holy Spirit binding us together. And fellowship is the deepest form of friendship when we are with people who are also seeking to serve Jesus and that when we are in the midst of crisis, we need to be together. And so often when we know a friend is in crisis, we think, well, I can't go because I don't know what I would say. 
Well, I will tell you, it doesn't matter what you say. They're not, I'm sorry if you think you're like really smart and really good with comforting words. Um, They're not going to remember what you said. They will remember that you came and that you were with them. And that's something that we need to learn to be more proactive about. Communicating love and forgiveness in extreme circumstances is important. So the setting for this passage is when they're having their last night's sleep before what they think may be the battle in which they'll all be killed. Tyrion, with his head against Jewel's flank, slept as sound as if he were in his royal bed at Caer Paravel, till the sound of a gong beating awoke him, and he sat up and saw that there was firelight on the far side of the stable and knew that the hour had come. Kiss me, Jewel, he said, for certainly this is our last night on earth. And if ever I offended against you in any matter, great or small, forgive me now. Dear king, said the unicorn, I almost wish you had so that I might forgive it. Farewell. We have known great joys together. If Aslan gave me my choice, I would choose no other life than the life I have had and no other death than the one we go to. Then they woke up Farsight, who was asleep with his head under his wing, and made him look as if he had no head at all, and crept forward to the stable. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Where was Jesus when he said that? On the cross. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And remember, that's in that same farewell discourse. Imagine being one of Jesus' disciples, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, desperately sad that he's going away, but hearing him say, I love you so much, I love you so much, that I'm going to come back to take you to be with me. But I do not, this is Paul, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And that's again from the farewell to the Ephesian elders. This group of people that Paul has been so deeply invested in, that he's ministered side by side with, shared the gospel of grace with, been in ministry partnership with, and now God's call is sending him to the adventure 
where he's going to proclaim the truth and take the adventure, even though he thinks it will likely be death. And so in all of these circumstances, you see people, Jesus and Paul, being proactive to share their love, to not just say, well, bye, but to share their love, to talk about what really matters, to make sure that they have made known the deep love and concern and care, and there are tears and there are kisses and there are embraces. This is the way fellowship in the body of Christ is supposed to be. It is not supposed to be this arm's length, I'm too cool for school sort of thing. It is a deep caring and sharing that is willing to risk the vulnerability of declaring love for others. Then a very applicable truth. When you make an alliance with evil, evil will end up controlling you. Three figures appeared. One was Rishda Tarkhan, the Kalarmine captain. The second was the ape. The ape was holding onto the Tarkhan's hand with one paw and kept whimpering and muttering, not so fast, don't go so fast. I'm not at all well. Oh, my poor head. These midnight meetings are getting too much for me. Apes aren't meant to be up at night. It's not as if I was a rat or a bat. Oh, my poor head. On the other side of the ape, walking very soft and stately, with his tail straight up in the air, came Ginger the cat. Rishda Tarkhan dragged the ape up close to the fire. The pair of them turned to face the crowd, and this, of course, meant their backs were toward Tyrion and his friends. Now, monkey, said Rishda Tarkhan in a low voice, say the words that wiser heads have put into thy mouth, and hold up thy head. As he spoke, he gave the ape a little prod or kick from behind with the point of his toe. Do leave me alone, muttered Shift. But he sat up straighter and began in a louder voice. Now listen, all of you, a terrible thing has happened, a wicked thing, the wickedest thing ever done in Narnia and Aslan. Tashlan, fool, whispered Reach to Tarkhan. Now remember, just a couple of chapters back, the ape was the king of the world. He was ordering nuts to be brought from him from the far corners of creation. He was ordering everyone to serve him, and he was ordering everyone to say, I'm a man now, I'm not an ape, I'm a man. And he was in his glory and pride. But he has allied himself with evil, and now he has been reduced to being the slave of Rishda Tarkhan and of this cat. Now, I'm not going to say anything about cats because I know there's some people that like them. But I just think it's interesting that Lewis chose a cat here. But this whole passage and this theme reminds me of one of the great themes in Lord of the Rings. And there is this whole scene in the Lord of the Rings where the two wizards, Gandalf and Saruman, meet together at the tower where Saruman is. And they're talking about fighting against the Lord of Mordor, Sauron, who was like Satan, the archetype of evil in Middle-earth. And what happens is Saruman says to Gandalf, you should join me because I'm partnering 
with Sauron. And he and I together, and you if you want, we will rule over this middle earth. And Gandalf looks to Saruman and says, there can be only one Lord of the Rings, only one who can bend them to his will, and he does not share power. I.e., if you ally yourself with that evil Lord, you are going to be his slave. So some scripture. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, this does not mean that all unbelievers are evil. Don't misunderstand me about that. But what it does mean is we have to be very careful about being yoked with people whose purpose and understanding of the goal of their life is not the same as ours. And then this really underappreciated passage from Matthew 6, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that if the way you see everything is full of darkness, and that's sort of your lens, that because that's the way you're perceiving reality, you're going to multiply the darkness within you. And then this great passage. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, why would we ever want to compromise with evil? For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then lies with a little truth mixed in are the most dangerous type of deception and can cut the ground out from under the truth. This was one of the great themes when we were studying that hideous strength, if you remember back to that book. Um, This is very much what we see in our culture with this whole idea of fake news and truthiness um, that Stephen Colbert came up with. Um, All of these ideas where there, there is a little bit of truth, but because there's a little bit of truth mixed with a lot of falsehood or part of the truth without the rest of the truth, misleading things result and people are swayed and caught up into the furor and the piling on from all of that. And listen to how clever this ape is at deceit because part of what deceit is is not just lies, but it's that idea of tricking people with a little bit of truth. Yes, said the ape, at this very moment, when the terrible one himself is among us, that's Tash or Tashlan, there in the stable just behind me, one wicked beast has chosen to do what you'd think no one would dare to do, even if he were a thousand miles away. It has dressed itself up in a lion's skin and is wandering about in these very woods, pretending to be Aslan. Jill wondered for a moment if the ape had gone mad. Was he going to tell the whole truth? 
A roar of horror and rage went up from the beast. Grrr, came the growls. Who is he? Where is he? Just let me get my teeth into him. Jill looked at the king. His mouth was open and his face was full of horror. And then she understood the devilish cunning of the enemy's plan. By mixing a little truth with it, they had made their lie far stronger. What was the good now of telling the beast that an ass had been dressed up as a lion to deceive them? The ape would only say, that's just what I've said. What was the good of showing them puzzle in his lion skin? They would only tear him in pieces. That's taken the wind out of our sails, whispered Eustace. The ground is taken from under our feet, said Tyrion. Says some scripture. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in dark, we lie and do not practice the truth. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, it's a great thing to remember that as discouraging it is as it is to live in a time where there is this lie and truth mixture everywhere, that we're still called to do what that first theme said, which is to proclaim the truth and take the adventure. So in closing, I'd like us to read the words of this hymn together, but I want to just point out a couple of things here. So the third line, with shield of faith and belt of truth, will stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness, our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And this so beautifully captures that we are against the devil's lies, we are against the captor, but we love the captive soul. And that is so important in this battle. So let's say these words together. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet, as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes like crushed beneath his feet, 
for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart will see him. So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, impatience, and isolation of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look up towards you, that we would set our minds and our hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and that you would help us to build real and true fellowship as we proclaim the truth with our brothers and sisters and take the adventure that you send us. Lord, we thank you for your word and for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Please try to meet someone you haven't met before you go home.